The following podcast contains explicit language. This is the first real victory, however temporary, for the resistance. Come on, you're the commander-in-chief. You can't be disappointed with the outcome of a federal case and say, well, the so-called judge. Any negative polls are fake news. You got that? Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who Xi Jinping knows as Paper Tiger, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. It's the end of week three of the Trump presidency, and I'd say it's been a good week for the resistance. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the stay of Trump's executive order on immigration, a.k.a. the Muslim ban. Thousands of Trump's opponents are showing up at town halls held by Republican members of Congress and chanting, do your job, the job being investigating corruption and upholding the law. Nordstrom dumped Ivanka's retail line, and Xi Jinping crushed Trump in a ping pong match. Trump has spent most of the week in a state of apoplexy about this and that. His aides are fighting with each other, and according to Politico, he's finding the job of president a lot harder than he expected. But the most important story was probably the bombshell in the Washington Post last night about his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, lying about his contacts with the Russians during the transition. I'll be back in a moment to speak with Susan Hennessy of the blog Lawfare about all the big news. Susan Hennessy is the managing editor of Lawfare. It's a blog about law and national security that's published by the Brookings Institution. She's a former lawyer at the National Security Agency. Susan, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. We got a lot to talk about. Um, First, today, Donald Trump tweeted something about Lawfare, and I hate to say he tweeted approvingly about something he read on Lawfare. So what's that all about? He did indeed. Um, so that was a bit of a surprise this morning. Uh, he tweeted uh, a sort of an, an excerpt from a piece, a quick reaction piece that um, our editor-in-chief Ben Wittes had written yesterday, noting that uh, the Ninth Circuit order didn't actually reference the underlying statute um, and, and that that was sort of unusual considering that uh, they were addressing the questions of sort of probability of success on the merits. Um, so Uh, What's interesting is that um, President Trump did appear to uh, tweet that approvingly. I would suggest that maybe he hasn't read the underlying piece, uh, which ultimately comes to the conclusion that the court made the correct decision um, and also suggests that President Trump is uh, malevolent and incompetent. Um, Yes, exactly. Ben Wittes, one of my favorite legal journalists, who came up with that terrific phrase, malevolence tempered by incompetence, to describe the order, but with the point he was making, I thought was an interesting point in the in the piece today, which is that there is this statute that gives that the, is the president's fundamental authority to restrict immigration, and in upholding the stay, the court didn't even refer to that, so it didn't even credit the idea that un- under certain circumstances or within certain boundaries, the president would have authority to restrict immigration. Yeah, so first I should note that um, while Trump sort of credited lawfare in general, um, we've actually been having a pretty robust debate on our pages about lots of people's individual opinions. Lawfare sort of doesn't have institutional uh, uh, views on things, but uh, lots of different views about this particular executive order. Um, so so ordinarily, uh, the president of the United States has really broad authority uh, related to matters of immigration. Congress has vested him with, uh, with quite a bit of statutory authority, and, and he has quite a bit of constitutional authority. Um, 
Um, so under ordinary circumstances, uh, the idea of challenging a presidential executive order on immigration would be a very, very difficult sort of hill to climb. Uh, what's a little bit different in this case um, is one, of course, uh, the president himself has talked about potentially uh, banning Muslims being the intent here. Uh, the problem is that what is not allowed uh, in executive orders is, is the president is not allowed to attempt to affect a discriminatory att- uh, effect um, while using, while pretending that it's really about something else, like a security consideration. So ordinarily under the Equal Protection Doctrine, it's, it's a very difficult to prove that kind of discriminatory intent. Uh, Donald Trump and, and Rudy Giuliani um, have done a little bit of kind of the ACLU's work for them. Um, The other thing that's really unusual in this case is that uh, the government didn't actually offer any evidence. Uh, They didn't support, they didn't um, submit any affidavits or or sort of explain its rationale regarding uh, why they were doing this to further the security of the United States. Um, And so what they were really telling the court is, you have no jurisdiction to review this, and then we don't even have to give you any evidence. Um, What the court came back uh, with and, and came back rather strongly was saying, you know, no, we, uh, we traditionally defer to the executive branch's judgment, but we are able to review these kinds of orders, um, and you are not entitled to not give us any information. Um, you didn't submit any kind of justification, you know, and so both in light of the lack of that body of evidence, paired with some of those statements that might indicate discriminatory intent, they were not inclined to extend that same kind of deference uh, in this case. So just since I sat down here in the studio to talk to you, there was news coming across headline on CNN that that the Trump administration is not going to appeal the Court of Appeals decision to the Supreme Court. What does that mean? Is that because they just want a do-over? They're going to try again with a new executive order that's drafted more carefully and maybe more narrowly? Yeah, so um, it's unclear uh, exactly what they mean by they won't immediately appeal, um, right? We've had uh, quite a bit of confusion about this order coming out of the White House, so um, wait and see in terms of what their actual strategy is. But one of the problems with the executive order here is that it included people who clearly have constitutional rights, including uh, lawful permanent residents and green card holders. And the way that they had attempted the White House sort of after this somewhat disastrous rollout had attempted to moderate that was essentially with a White House counsel decision, right? So the White House counsel said, oh, you know, never mind. It doesn't apply to legal permanent residents. It doesn't, it doesn't apply to green card holders or, or people who've already been granted a visa. The, the problem with that is that, you know, the, the legal opinion of, of White House counsel has no effect. It's not binding on any other agency. So really what the government was trying to do originally uh, before the Ninth Circuit was to get the court to do some of its work for it, right? It was saying, well, even if there's a, there's a problem with the way we drafted the order uh, as applied to this group of individuals, just sever out that group of individuals and let the order uh, stand with regards to, to basically people who have not yet come into the United States and are not lawful permanent residents. Um, the court sort of said, you know, no, we're not going to do your work for you. Um, this is on its face. It, it includes these people. Um, you know, there, there's some place to draw the line, and, and it's not our job to draw that line. Um, one thing that is uh, potentially concerning to uh, to opponents of the law is that, of course, there is a way in which uh, some of the the more troubling features, like suspension of, of accepting refugees, um, there actually is a way to do that legally. And so one thing that the White House might now attempt to do is rescind the old executive order um, and issue a new one um, that's far more limited, but far more legally justified. 
really the only thing the government has to lose at this point um, is sort of its pride in, in rescinding the executive order and, and putting forward a, a more limited one. It's it sort of it's admitting its mistake. It's admitting it was overbroad. Uh, strategically, though, this would essentially moot the, the current court case and probably have an executive order that would legally stand moving forward. Susan, the other crazy news just breaking right now is another story on CNN that says the investigation into the Russian hack has confirmed some of the information in that infamous leaked dossier. So what does that mean, potentially? First of all, who's investigating? Is this an FBI investigation? Right. So there's been, um, there are, there's lots of different sort of uh, strains that's going on in terms of uh, investigations into Russian interference in the U.S. election. And it's a little bit difficult to keep them all straight, um, in part because we're, these are media reports that are, are based on, um, on anonymous sources. So it's a little bit of a piecemeal information and, and partly because it, it just is, it seems to be very, very complex. Um, so, of course, the question of whether or not there was uh, Russian involvement in hacking the DNC or otherwise targeting uh, the U.S. election, that has more or less been laid to rest. Um, we saw this intelligence community assessment and, um, and follow-up report uh, that really conclusively said uh, the Russians were responsible for that. Even Trump has sort of stopped kicking on that one, on that aspect right. of so it. Originally, he kind of pushed back as, you know, fake news, and then maybe he accepted it, and then he took back the fact that he accepted it. But he's sort of, he's moved on from that. There are, however, a number of reports, you know, really multiple media reports that describe an ongoing, very, very serious investigation into uh, Trump associates um, and potentially their ties to Russia. So some of the people who've been named as possible targets include uh, former campaign uh, manager Paul Manafort, uh, you know, potentially for violations of things like the Foreign Agents Registration Act uh, or some of his conduct while in Ukraine. Carter Page, who's an individual who's um, sort of popped up as an unknown foreign policy advisor to to Donald Trump early in the campaign, and then rather quickly disavowed um, after there were some reports of, of potentially him having improper conduct with Russian officials. Uh, Roger Stone, a close Trump advisor, who uh, sort of cheekily suggested that he had communications with WikiLeaks um, regarding uh, the release of information damaging to Hillary Clinton during the campaign, um, and now potentially National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Um, so these are all, it's a really complex investigation. Um, uh, reportedly, there are there is a, either a, a task force or a working group, some kind of interagency effort um, that involves a number of different agencies within the federal government. So the CIA, the NSA, uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, um, and portions of the Treasury Department that um, undertake uh, financial intelligence investigations. So uh, this is all coming up against the backdrop of both um, President Trump's rather unusual, if not outright bizarre statements regarding his personal affection for Vladimir Putin, um, and also, of course, this salacious but previously unconfirmed dossier, right? So the allegations in the dossier run from the rather colorful uh, and and salacious uh, to actually far more consequential suggestions that actually there was collusion um, between members of Trump's campaign and uh, potentially paying for or soliciting a hacking of the election um, uh, or the receipt of funds, which is a, which is a very serious crime. Which I mean, that's the whole ball game, Susan. Right? I mean, if they if they if there is proof of that, it's impeachment. 
Could it not be impeachment if there was collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian intervention in the election? Um, you know, look, in, in any other administration, um, uh, I would say, uh, you know, of course not. You know, of course somebody would be impeached for that. Because tre- um, you, treason is generally an impeachable offense. Yeah, so, look, um, we should be sort of careful in terms of how we think about um, uh, sort of the, the legal terms and the potential charges here. The sort of the, the ground truth here is one um Kind of all bets are off, right? Um, we've seen uh, lots of allegations already emerge that um, probably would have uh, felled the previous president, certainly previous presidential campaign, and, and Donald Trump has persisted. Um, and ultimately, the calculations underlying the decision to impeach a president are, are political, right? It's, it's whether or not Congress thinks that it's worse off with the president in office or, or, or better. Um, and so, it's not necessarily uh, that easy to predict, um, hey, you know, this is the thing. Certainly, whenever we look back on the history of, of serious presidential scandals, things like, you know, Nixon and, and Watergate and, and these sort of things, um, this kind of really, really scandalous allegation of criminal conduct and then, of course, a criminal cover-up has been a trigger point. There is still a question about what exactly has been corroborated in this dossier. So apparently they, they've corroborated meetings between foreign nationals at the place and time described in the dossier. They are not commenting on U.S. persons. And then there's also, of course, a question about what the president himself knew. So even if there is credible evidence about one of his advisors, um, if there's no evidence or indication that Trump himself was involved or aware or otherwise complicit, he may be able to distance himself from the scandal. It's it's really unclear where this is headed, uh, but this is certainly the slow-burning story that just is not going away. But this is a really big deal because until now, there was no fact in that 30-page dossier that had been confirmed. And there were a couple, particularly about Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, having this meeting in Prague, that were negatively confirmed in that there seemed to be pretty strong evidence presented that the dossier was not right on those points. And, you know, I've always assumed that some stuff is in there is true. But now if we have, have evidence, if investigators believe that there are true facts in that dossier, then it becomes a question of like, well, let's sort out which other facts are true and which aren't. The thing doesn't look like a hoax. It doesn't look like fake news. It looks like uncorroborated intelligence, which you then have to check out. Right. So uh, it's important to sort of to, to keep in mind that um, just because a single fact in the dossier is proven true, it doesn't mean everything else in the dossier is proven true. And just because a single fact is proven false, it doesn't mean the rest of the dossier is false. Um, certainly, the fact that some information has been corroborated at this point is, is highly significant. Um, it tells the general public um, this story had a little bit died down after kind of the initial, you know, very, very splashy headlines. Um, because nothing was confirmed by either by the media or, or the government shortly thereafter, it kind of died because nobody really knew what to make of it. These, these allegations just sort of hung over like a cloud. Now, uh, the fact that at least some of the facts are true um, potentially breathe new life into the story. Um, certainly, they signal to, uh, to U.S. investigators and also foreign investigators who might be uh, also interested in, in the potential conduct here for their own uh, intelligence and, and counterintelligence purposes. Um, it says, hey, you know, th- there really is something to these allegations. Um, you should keep looking uh, to see if anything else can be corroborated. So in terms of... Uh, uh, you know, whether or not the Trump campaign or um, the Trump administration um, uh, continues to sort of attempt to deny this dossier outright, right? Just say, this is fake news. There's nothing to this. Um, they're not going to be able to do that moving forward because 
their own uh, you know agency is, uh, have concluded otherwise. Well, they'll do it anyway. I mean, they're going full volume fake news right now. I mean, they haven't seemed very inhibited when it comes to attacking the CIA and other intelligence agencies, their own or not, as fraudulent, enemy, unreliable. But yes, I take your point. It gets a little harder for them. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that's, um, that I think is significant here is that the, the report says that this is based on intercepted communications. Um, so that means there's a tape. Um, that means there's actual evidence. And so even if the Trump administration is not inclined to investigate that or bring it to the public, um, there actually is investigations ongoing in Congress. Um, so the SSBI, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, is undertaking an investigation. That investigation, that, that committee has the subpoena power. Um, they can now ask for the administration. They can demand that the administration produce these tapes for review. Um, so the fact that there's this kind of hard evidence underlying uh, the corroboration uh, may make it really difficult moving forward for the administration to just kind of make this go away. So let's talk about Michael Flynn, Trump's national security advisor during the transition spoke to the Russian ambassador, uh, Mr. Kislyak. Is that how you pronounce his name? I think so. That's how I pronounce it. So I'm, uh, It's got a lot, of, con- it's got a lot of consonants in a row. And he has previously said that those were just uh, pleasantries, Merry Christmas, that, and he specifically said they did not discuss the sanctions the Obama administration placed on Russia in retaliation for the hacking and intervention in the election. And he got the vice president, Mike Pence, to go on Face the Nation and repeat that assurance that they hadn't talked about that. Last night, the Washington Post broke a story supported by no less than nine sources who said, in fact, the NSA picked up this conversation and they were talking about the sanctions and Flynn was saying something about addressing them after the new administration is sworn in. So there are a lot of implications there. I mean, the first to start out is what kind of bonehead national security advisor doesn't know that the NSA has is listening to conversations recorded from the Russian ambassador's phone? Right. So, um, uh, sort of as a, a former NSA lawyer, I will, I will do my duty to note that, um, it, the, the likely speculation here is that it's a FISA warrant. Um, and so, uh, the NSA is not the only group that has FISA warrants. The FBI also uses them, uh, uh domestically on foreign targets. Um, so sort of the, the speculation here is, um, you know, the Russian ambassador, uh, is an, is a foreign power. Um, and so that bring, that makes him, uh, a targetable, potentially targetable under U.S. surveillance laws. Uh, and foreign intelligence surveillance laws. Um, so certainly somebody like Michael Flynn um, should be aware that there's a high probability that, that this person would be a target. Um, the Russian ambassador might be a target. Um, and, and it's not unusual for um, for U.S. officials' communications to be incidentally sort of collected, uh, you know, as they speak to, to foreign powers. Um, that's there's nothing necessarily nefarious about that, um, nor is there anything necessarily nefarious about an incoming national security advisor talking to a foreign official during the transition period or even Russian officials, right? The thing that was sort of um, the very strange kind of red flag early in the story, it was, it was first reported uh, uh, sort of shortly before the inauguration, um, is that there had been five phone calls in a single day um, and that they had all taken place uh, more or less in the period between uh, when the Obama administration had notified the Russian embassy of their intention to issue these sanctions and uh, retaliatory action um, and when those, uh, when those sanctions were announced publicly. And so this, this raises the question of, well, did, did Michael Flynn 
promise something, right? What was what was the the nature of that communication? Was he trying to undercut, you know, sort of uh, U.S. foreign policy? Was he promising that, hey, you know, once we get in office, we'll we'll lift these sanctions? A lot of people are sort of um, uh, yelling about the Logan Act. The Logan Act. Um, it's, yeah, what it's is never- the Logan Act? How do you how do you violate the Logan Act? <laughs> So um, it's never the Logan Act. Uh, so the Logan Act is a 1799 law uh, that essentially says it it makes it uh, a crime for a an unauthorized person to uh, to conduct the foreign affairs of the United States. Um, so the Logan Act has never been enforced. Uh, there has not been a indictment under the Logan Act and since 1803. And there are serious questions about whether or not it actually is even an enforceable law. There are sort of significant questions about the First Amendment and sort of other issues there. So the notion that the Logan Act itself can be violated is, yes, on on sort of the face of the statute, um, it can be violated. And this is conduct that's kind of based on the pure words of the Logan Act would violate the statute. But that's not quite the same as saying, you know, oh, he's going to get indicted under the Logan Act, right, for, you know, the first person in, in you know, 100 years. Right. Maybe unlikely, but non-officials are pretty careful about this. I mean, that period of the transition when you're not yet the government. I mean, I've heard people who were going into office saying they are super cautious about discussing anything that would be construed as negotiating policy because we only have one president at a time. Yeah, so I think it does, right, it it embodies this really important normative um, principle and and protection, right, sort of the the no running with scissors rule. We have one president who who conducts foreign policy. Um, You know, there's also sort of a question about... um, you know, uh, what goals are served for the United States um, in, in undercutting uh, the particular actions by the Obama administration? Um, so we saw even GOP Congress sort of coming forward and, and, and not only uh, allowing the sanctions, but saying they should have been stronger, right? That this had nothing to do with politics. This was about uh, countering Russian aggression. So if there is going to be criminal charges, and I I would venture a guess that there probably won't be. Um, it's more likely that it would be in the course of this investigation. Um, so in the course of having heard these phone calls, um, whatever they heard, uh, whatever they saw in terms of the frequency or the form of the conduct, um, the FBI actually decided to investigate further. Right. So they don't investigate every every communication they hear between a U.S. official and, and a foreign government, even in the transition period. Um, but something about these these communications kind of set off a red flag, and they said we're going to investigate this further. So what's important for people to understand is the. FBI is not ha- undertaking a Logan Act investigation. There's no such thing. I mean, that would be the worst possible record ever, you know, if they were sort of O for, you know, since the founding. Uh, the investigation that would be undertaken or the reported investigation is likely a counterintelligence investigation. Um, so that's a relatively serious fact or accusation that the current National Security Advisor is under counterintelligence investigation. Um, that raises really, really serious questions about his credibility, uh, his ability to do his job, uh, whether or not our allies or other parts of the government are going to trust him moving forward. Layer on top of that, um, uh, whether or not he lied um, either to Vice President Mike Pence or potentially if he was ever interviewed by a federal investigator. Um, of course, that's it's a crime uh, to lie to a you know lie to an FBI agent. Um, those are the kinds of things that might end up actually being the undoing here, right? So sort of the classic cover-up is worse than the crime. Substantively, this is really bizarre behavior. It's really uh, questionable. It really raises questions about his judgment. But it's probably not criminal. It's, it's you know, it's more just really, really weird. But But just one other detail here, which I'm surprised hasn't been made more of, Flynn took money 
from the Russians. He acknowledges he made a speech at this banquet for RT, Russian state television, uh, where, he, where he sat next to Vladimir Putin. He won't say how much money he took, but he was paid some significant amount of money by effectively the Kremlin, and he won't even give us the details on it. I mean, yes, maybe it's just weird, but it, in the context of what's going on here, it's horrifying. Yeah, so um, uh, again, yes, <laughs> not maybe it's weird. It's it's 100% weird. Um, you know, that, that sort of a, a former uh, director of the, the DIA would kind of immediately get fired by the Pentagon and hop on a plane to Moscow. That's just, that's a very, very strange judgment. Um, there are actually uh, rules in effect here, right? So um, a foreign, uh, a retired military officer um, is only allowed to accept payment from a foreign government um, if he's gotten permission from uh, from his service. Uh, that's actually a feature of uh, the emoluments clause, um, uh, which we've heard so much about as of late. The the way that uh, Flynn sort of potentially skirted the rules in this case is um, he actually wasn't paid directly by RT. He was paid by a speaker's bureau, so sort of this intermediate uh, thing. So yes, you know, sort of reasonable people can say, hey, you know, we can draw the lines directly from money that came out of the Kremlin into into your pocket. But sort of on a technicality, you know, was that accepting payment from a foreign government? Under but the that's law, really BS. Not. I mean, I have a speaker's bureau. The speaker's bureau cuts the check the same as your agent does, but they don't. The money's not coming from them. Right. So it, it, this really is a question of sort of very strange legal loopholes. Um, that said, it, it's not uh, necessarily illegal for him to have uh, accepted money. He actually could have accepted it directly from a foreign government um, if he'd gotten permission. Uh, same for his firm accepting money from the Turkish government. Um, it, it really is a question of transparency, right? So, um, you know, why hasn't he provided a more information or explanation about uh, why he did that or how much he was paid or, or what the arrangement was? certainly on the Russia front, uh, you know, his relationship to, uh, again, an intermediary. Uh, so, uh, you know, a Dutch company with very close ties to, uh, to the Turkish government uh, that had paid him uh, his firm for consulting fees, uh, uh, for consulting advice. You know, that's, uh, again, very, very questionable, questionable judgment for someone to take that money. Far more questionable, the day of the election, uh, Michael Flynn wrote an op-ed calling for the extradition of Gulen, who is a Turkish cleric who's um, currently protected within the United States um, from sort of political uh, persecution within Turkey. He he wrote that op-ed, you know, on the day Trump was elected uh, without disclosing that he had actually received money uh, from a group that that had this interest. Um, And so, you know, that's the kind of of, of just uh, lack of judgment and, and real questions about kind of basic integrity and um, sort of putting the interests of the nation before your financial interests or whatever else might be motivating him here. You know, the National Security Advisor is a very, very important job. Um, and if people don't trust you, you just can't do it. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not Donald Trump personally trusts Michael Flynn or whether or not he personally feels a sense of loyalty. As the president of the United States, he has to put the interests and security of the United States first. And if he can't get people to trust his national security advisor, um, then he's going to have to cut him loose because that job is just too important to have someone ineffective uh, occupying the office. Even in this crazy administration, I give him about a week. What about you? Uh, I I would be surprised if he can outlive this particular scandal. Um, but I have got to say, I have been surprised many, many times in the past few months. So um, I, I'm not sure I'm willing to wager 
you know, just about anything. Uh, but this is, this is very, very serious. I've been speaking to Susan Hennessy from the excellent Lawfare blog, which is about law and national security. You can follow her on Twitter at Susan underscore Hennessy. Susan, thanks for talking to me. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.